I'm bringing uh, this morning's message from Second Peter, chapter one. Second Peter one, verse three to eleven, and the theme for this morning's message is a time to grow spiritually. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are our God. You are the Holy One. You are the Righteous One. You give life and you take life. As Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We worship you, the Sovereign Ruler, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God above all. And we pray that you would enable our minds to understand the truths of Scripture and that your Holy Spirit would move our hearts to love Christ. And if we love you, Lord Jesus, we will obey you. Guide us now in your way, in your words, in your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Now, during the lockdown, as it's going on, and it's been extended as we know, I've heard a number of our church members say uh, during Skype prayer meetings and when I speak to them on the phone that they find more time for reading the Word of God, reading the Bible, and time in prayer during the lockdown. And for myself, I too have found more time to memorize Bible verses again, portions of Scripture, uh, my family. They found time to read through the New Testament in 21 days. There's like a Bible reading challenge. And perhaps some of you must say that you're not really making extra time for the Word, even though you may, may have some extra minutes or even hours on your hands, and some of you may even have to say that I'm, I'm not staying the same as before, I'm doing even less than before. Well, I want to encourage you and I want to spur you on to use the time well and use this as a time to grow spiritually. So first of all, we're going to look at the foundation of spiritual growth in verse 3 and 4. Peter says, his, that is Christ, from the previous verse, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So when we speak of the foundation of spiritual growth, uh, the first, let's say, it's section of that foundation is God's character. So anyone who wants to obey verse 5 to 7, verse 5 to 7 is going to tell you how to grow spiritually, what to do. Anyone who tries to do that without first having verse 3 and 4, well, that's like a child playing, let's play office, office. Let's play uh, doctor, doctor. And, and they play office, office. And they're working on a computer, but it's not plugged in. It's an old computer that doesn't work. And that's exactly how we are when we try to grow spiritually, but we don't have verse 3 and 4. We don't have the foundation. 
We need God's power. We need God's knowledge to grow spiritually. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, it tells us. And that's what we need to pray for, is for this knowledge. And then expect an answer. Peter prayed in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately in verse 3, he provides an answer how we can grow spiritually in this knowledge and then through the power of God. So it's God's divine power. God's power, Christ's power has given to us all things we need. Everything you and I need for life, he says in verse 3, meaning eternal life and meaning the Christian life on earth. And everything you and I need for godliness, how to bear fruit, the fruit of repentance and the fruit of the Christian life. So why do we need power? We need power because we live in a very evil world, in a very wicked world. End of verse 4 speaks of uh, the corruption that is in the world. It's almost like a magnet and you're a piece of metal and this magnet is pulling you. And it needs a very strong power, an outside power, the power of God himself to pull you away from these worldly desires and evil desires, a divine hand, a supernatural power to help us so that we want to be holy and that we don't want to be like the world. So how do we get this power? Well, it says in verse 3, through the knowledge of Him. So we need an intimate knowledge of God, a personal knowledge of God through Jesus Christ and in the Word of God and in prayer. Like John tells us, this is eternal life, that they know you, the, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then Jesus Himself says to the Father, I have made your name known to my disciples. I will continue to make you known. To them. In Proverbs 2 says you must seek this knowledge, the knowledge of God. Seek God, seek wisdom, the wisdom of God, like you would seek for hidden treasures or for silver or some other precious metal. And verse 3 tells us it's through the knowledge of God. So that is sufficient. He says God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God's power, God's knowledge, that is sufficient for us to know how we should live in this life. You don't need the theories of psychology. You don't need new revelations, some extra prophecies from outside. We've got everything we need in Christ and in His Word to show us how we should live the Christian life. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 tells us the same, where it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And when I speak of this and say we've got everything we need in the Word of God, I'm not merely speaking about external rules and laws and saying do this and don't do that. I'm talking about an, an inward calling, an inward change of, the, of heart, that we are empowered by God Himself to be obedient to His Word because He has called us to be His children. Verse 3, it, says, it speaks of God who has called us. And it says, it goes further, he has called us to his own glory and excellence. Or it may be translated that he has called us uh, for these things, not just to these things. He has called us by his own glory and excellence. So God's glory is, is his radiance. Uh, God's glory is the revelation of himself, of all that he is 
He reveals himself to us in Christ. We have seen Christ's glory, John tells us in chapter 1, verse 14. And then the, the glory of Christ in 2 Peter 1, verse 17, and now in verse 3, we read of the glory of Christ. And then his excellence speaks of his moral goodness, of his uprightness, of, uh, and then translated your yeah, excellence or virtue. So God has called us by his own glory and excellence, but also it can be translated to his own glory and excellence, meaning then that God's glory and God's excellence shines through our character as we become more and more like Jesus, as we become more and more holy as God is holy. So we shouldn't, as Christians, we shouldn't be a, a bad advert, bad advertisement to the gospel or to Christ. We should follow Jesus, the example of Christ. Walk as Christ walked. Follow the example of God. Imitate God, Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, like, like a little child would imitate his or her parent. Because if we don't do that, then, then we like uh, Romans 2.24, and it says that the Gentiles or the pagans, they mock God. They... They really slander God's name because of the lives of people who call themselves believers but don't live that way. It's almost like a teacher once said to my mother, my mother was uh, a teacher for many years, and a colleague of hers said, oh, you know, this naughty kid, he's probably naughty because he's got very bad parents. And my mother said, no, 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 I, I know those parents. They are very kind parents and very good parents. This is a rebellious child. And they'll say the same about God. If we are evil and we are disobedient, they'll say, oh, what a bad savior they have and what a, an evil God they must have. And then also God's promises is also a second section of this foundation. Remember, we're still under, under point number one, the foundation of spiritual growth. But we're looking at God's promises as part of this foundation. So you've got a coach who coaches athletics and he's got a star athlete, a top athlete. And he tells that athlete, if you keep on practicing like you do and you train like you do and you train hard, you're going to win the gold medal. I mean, just looking at your times, you're going to take this one. And that's exactly what God's promises does. God has this promise that he tells us, if you keep on growing, then, and then he gives the the conditions or the, the promise. So the condition is you keep on growing. So, so God's promises really spur us on to spiritual growth. And God has given us these promises, verse 4, by which he has granted us to, his, to us his precious and very great, great promises. So by which meaning by God's glory, by God's excellence, he has given us these promises. And he calls them very great promises. They're great because they speak of great things. Great promises like all your sins can be forgiven. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved from God's judgment in hell. You will have eternal life. Even now, you will have the fullness of eternal life in heaven. And even more so at the second coming when Jesus returns and gives us new bodies. Uh, God will work all things to your advantage if you love him. And if you are called according to his purpose, no one can pluck you from his hand. Nothing can separate you from his love. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus and so on. And then it's also called very great promises, meaning how many there are. There, there are probably uh, 7,500 promises in the Bible. So that's a great promises God has given us. And then it's called not only great promises, 
but it's called precious promises. Precious, like precious stones, like gemstones, like diamonds and rubies and sapphires. And they're also precious, especially to Christians, they're precious in times of trial and need and sadness and mourning and doubts and problems and temptations and sin and death. So really there's a promise for any and every circumstance. So God's, God's promises, He says, He has given us these promises. It's a very, very great gift to God's people. So I want to encourage you to memorize. Start memorizing God's promises and then meditating on them. Think them over. Turn them over and over from every angle in your mind and in your prayers. And then know God's promises and believe God's promises and hold fast to God's promises. And then also another part of this foundation still is God's nature. That's the foundation of spiritual growth. So let's take Lazarus in John 11. So Lazarus dies. And then what does Jesus have to do to bring him back to life? What can they do? Maybe, as an old preacher said, connect him to a battery and shock him and see if he comes to life. Or perhaps you can put him on an oxygen a machine that, that pumps oxygen into his lungs and that'll bring him back to life. Or maybe fasten strings to his hands and feet. And you can have many people help you and you can maneuver his arms and his legs like you do with a marionette, with a puppet. Well, that wouldn't help at all. Jesus needed to give life, to give life to Lazarus. And the same, the same if I can draw the illustration and, and take it to Second Peter 1, you don't become spiritually alive by doing spiritual things, like reading the Bible or praying or, or doing good works or going to worship services and so on. God must give life. So it's God who gives his very own nature, his very own life that is called eternal life. He gives to us by the Spirit who dwells in us. Verse 4, second part. We have become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, you are born from above. You are born of God. You are born again. You are born of the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in you. Christ lives in me. It's not I that live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, that does not mean that you become God when it says we are partakers of the divine nature. Uh, what it rather means is you partake in God's very own life. And you enjoy this life. And you enjoy the divine nature of God in you by the Spirit, by believing His promises and by obeying the conditions of those promises. Because He says in verse 4, we have become, uh, through them, that you may become partakers. Through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Promises like 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God, is, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So in other words, you need to have the Son of God by faith. And then you can have this life. Then you can become partakers of the divine life, of the eternal life, of the divine nature. Now what needed to happen before that, we had to, we had to be saved. We had to die to self before you could have God's life in you. We had to do the end of verse 4, or, yeah, verse four where it says, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, the rottenness, the corruption, the corroding, the death that was in us because of sinful desires and because of that which permeates the whole world, everyone in the world. So we had to die to self before God's life could be in us, before God's nature could be in us. Is that true of you? Or if you do look at the desires that are still in your heart, the thoughts of your mind, are you like a corpse that is busy decaying because you're so rotten, you're so corrupted inside, as verse at the end of verse 4 tells, sinful desires, corruption in the world, and you're exactly like that, you're no different from the rest of the world, you're evil to the core of your being. Are you like the old Scottish, Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said, are you like a volcano, you can't even see down the crater of the volcano because of the smoke, it's, it's so deep, the evil of your heart. Your heart is so deceitful. It's like a dark well. You try and look down the well. You can't even see a few meters down because it's pitch dark. And so is your heart. You're a hypocrite. If we had to show your thoughts to everyone uh, this morning, if we had to put it on a screen, if it had to be displayed, if, you're, if it's almost if... if your being had to be pulled back and peeled back and your desire shown to everyone, you would hide, you would be ashamed, you would be embarrassed, you would flee because your heart is so wicked, you're such a hypocrite, you're such an evil person. And you, you put on a face, you put on a mask in front of people. You're a hypocrite with your friends and with people who know you. You smile at them, but deep inside you're evil and you're wicked and you hate them and you're bitter and you gossip about them and you slander them behind their backs. Number two. So that was, first of all, the foundation of spiritual growth. Number two the way to grow spiritually. And that is in verse 5 to 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. All right, so the way to grow spiritually, one by one, first you need zeal, because he says in verse Verse 5, you must make effort. So it's hard work. When you were in love, before you got married, well, I hope you're still in love, but when you were in love, you just met up, you didn't say, I'm too busy to spend time with you. I'm too tired to spend time with you. No, no. What you did is you made time because it was important to you to spend time with your beloved. And so when it comes to spiritual growth, you will grow spiritually if it's important to you. And if it's important to you, you will make time. You will make every effort. Verse 5 tells us. Now when we speak of spiritual growth then, you see it's not a passive thing. It's not a, oh, let's just sit back and wait on the Holy Spirit to make me holy. Let's just sit back, let go and let God, let the Lord do it through me and do it in me. I'm not going to do anything. I just, I just wait on the Lord. Well, no. How it works 
it really works like this. God gives us the strength. He gives us the knowledge, as we saw in verse 3. He gives us power. He gives us knowledge. He gives us a new nature, verse 4. He gives us the willingness. He gives us His promises, verse 3 and 4, in Philippians 2.13. It's almost like saying, um, God has set the table with all these rich foods, a lavish meal, but then you need to believe in God. You need to grab a hold of God. You need to do all that is necessary for spiritual growth, verse 5 to 7. It's, it's almost like saying you need to dish up for yourself and enjoy the meal and eat the wonderful food that is set on the table. Philippians 2, verse 12. So Philippians 2, 12, work, your own salvation, work out your own salvation with, with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it's God who works in you to will... And to work according to his good pleasure. So he will provide you with a willingness and with a strength and with a knowledge and with all you need. He will dish the table, set the table, but you need to dish up and eat the meal. And that's the only way you can turn away from this world and make sure that you don't turn back to the world and to the corruption and the evil of the world and sinful desire. That's the only way to make sure you don't go back to the end of verse 4. Corruption and sinful desire is by doing verse 5 to 7 is by keep on growing. God has now saved you, it said in verse 4, but you need to keep on. You need to push on. You need to go forward. And if you start lagging behind and you fall back and you don't want to make an effort, as verse 5 says, well, then you are going to fall back and maybe even fall away permanently. Second way to grow spiritually, we're still under main heading number two, is faith. So verse 5 says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. You need faith. What is faith? Well, people have different definitions for faith. Some would say, I trust in the Lord to provide me with food and clothes, and when I'm in trouble, I pray and God helps me. Some would say, oh, faith, that means you're not really sure of something. You're not really sure, is the Bible true? So you just need to take a risk and believe it because what if the Bible is true, then you lose your soul and go to hell? Others would say, no, faith it merely means to believe the facts of the gospel. Uh, Jesus is God, he became man, he died on the cross for our sins, he rose from the dead on the third day after he was buried. And then others would say, no, faith. Faith is something you speak to get stuff. So you speak faith, you, you speak life, and then you'll get the things you want from God. That's faith. Well, all of those definitions doesn't come to the biblical definition of saving faith. Saving faith really means believing the facts of the gospel, the ones I just mentioned earlier, about Jesus being God, becoming man, dying on the cross for our sins, being buried, and then rising from the dead on the third day. Uh, but it goes more than that. It means trusting. It means placing your full trust, hope, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, closing in on Christ, receiving Christ as your Savior, taking Him as your Lord and Savior, bowing the knee to Him, coming to Him by faith, placing your hope in Him. And then even further, faith, is, faith can only come to us by revelation from God. So God revealed to Abraham, Abraham, you must go to the country called Canaan. 
I want you to back up. And God actually didn't even tell him where he was going. I want you to move. And then Abraham, God calls him. And so Abraham could only believe God because God had revealed himself to Abraham. And God has revealed himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel, by the Spirit who opens our eyes. It's a revelation of the truth of God, of the gospel of God. So really, faith is a supernatural thing. It's not something you muster up in your own heart. It's not something you work up in yourself. It's a supernatural work of God. God gives you the ability to believe. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9, Philippians 1 29. So do you have this faith? Do you have saving faith? Because that's the beginning of spiritual growth. That is the, the trunk of the tree. So the roots we had in verse 3 and 4, and then faith receives those things and believes those things and appropriates them and takes them for yourself by God's enablement. And then the trunk of the tree is faith, and all the branches in verse 5 to 7 grow from the trunk of faith. You see in verse 5, faith is the very first of them all. And then the next one is virtue. It's really the same Greek word excellence we had in verse, end of verse 3. So excellence or virtue. So when you die at your funeral... What, what would it mean at all if people say, wow, he had a lot of money. Well, you didn't take any of it with you. Or if people said, wow, she was really clever. Well, now your brain's going to rot in the grave. It's going to decay. Or, wow, you know, they were really successful and popular. So what? They did. Why not rather have people say when you die, when you die that person was an excellent servant of Jesus Christ. Moral excellence, upright, pure. They were like, he was like his Lord. She was like her Lord. Like the Lord. Excellent, end of verse 3. And now in verse 5, we too as Christians, excellent. So this is what we should strive for and pursue and chase after and pray for. And then knowledge is the next in verse 3. So you know Jesus, uh, not in verse 3, in verse 5. So you know Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you know Him. You have the knowledge of God. Verse 3 speaks of the knowledge of Him. Verse 2 also. Uh, verse 2 really says that knowledge can grow, and it should grow more and more, more and more. Almost like in a marriage where you get to know your spouse more and more in a deeper and deeper relationship or with a friend, knowing them more and more. So verse 5 says, add to your faith virtue and to your virtue add knowledge. Chapter 3 verse 18, we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or like Philippians 3 verse 8 says, where Paul says, I just want to know Christ. There's like a striving, a drive to know Christ more. And we know him through his word. And we know him in prayer. And that privately, yes, but also corporately as a church together where we pray together. And when we read the word together and we study the word together. And when we hear the preaching of the word together. And then self-control is next. So you need self-control if you want to grow. Verse 6 said, says that we should add self-control to this knowledge. 
You need to discipline yourself. 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, Hebrews 5 14. You need to discipline yourself if you want to grow. Discipline yourself. I cannot go to bed at midnight. As I had to do last night. Couldn't sleep. But, But discipline yourself in general. Not to go to bed too late. Not to sleep in in the morning and just say, I don't want to get up. I don't want to get up for prayer or for the word. Discipline yourself to say, not another program on TV. Not another 20 minutes in front of the computer on the internet. Not more time on the cell phone. Put down the cell phone. Switch off the cell phone. Put it on silent. Say no to these things. Discipline yourself so that you can discipline yourself to say yes to reading the Word of God, memorizing it, studying it, meditating on it, spending time in prayer, worshiping with the believers, giving yourself to good works, fleeing sin, saying no to sin, saying yes to obedience. The more you control yourself, the easier it gets. The more you control and discipline yourself, the more you'll get it right. And then obviously we need the Spirit's power here, but I've already said that in verse 3. We need God's power. We need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to be self-controlled because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And then next we have in verse 6, steadfastness. My wife and I watched a documentary some years ago on how they train Navy SEALs. And at one stage, the Navy SEALs had to carry a backpack for many, many miles, but it was loaded with sand. And as they go, some of the guys just take the backpacks off and and they give up. They don't finish Navy SEAL training. We shouldn't be like this. We should stay under, stay under the circumstances, challenges, trials of life. Stay under Don't give up. Don't throw it off and say, I give up. This is too hard. And you deny your Lord and you turn your back on Him. So it literally means the Greek, stay under, remain under. And that's how how you discern between the true and the false believer, right? The false believer isn't one who perseveres. The true believer is one who perseveres even through hard times. Verse 6, Romans 5, three, verse 3 and 4, uh, James 1, verse 2 to 4. Even the trials, God uses the trials to produce steadfastness in us. But the false believer, well, he disciplines himself for a time, like we saw self-control, but then he's not steadfast in it. He gives up. He gives up. He doesn't want to follow Jesus anymore. It's, it's getting too hard. Like we read in Matthew 13, or the parable of the soils. It's too hard. I don't have roots. I don't have roots to draw moisture from the Word of God and from a relationship with Christ. And so you get burnt by the sun and you get scorched and you die. How about you? Are you growing? Are you growing spiritually? Are you growing during this time of lockdown? Well, if you are, I want to encourage you and spur you on not to give up. Don't come back after lockdown. And then you just continue where you, the way you were before lockdown started. So lockdown was a time for spiritual growth for you, but now you've gone back. Don't. Keep on. Persevere. And then next we see godliness in verse 7. 
We use the phrase or the term or the word Pharisee in a very derogative way, in a negative way. Uh, Because of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 23, for example, we use the word Pharisee to refer to someone uh, outwardly or externally, oh, you're very pious and you're very holy and you're very uh, religious, but, but inwardly you're rotten. When we speak of godliness, that's the exact opposite in verse 6. Godliness literally means, the Greek word implies here, uh, an uprightness toward God, a fear of God, a respect for God, an inward, an internal devotion of the heart, but it becomes visible in an external life of holiness and of obedience. And that's what we should ask the Lord. Lord, make my heart like that. I want my heart to be like that. Which also will mean that you need to feed your heart with what is good and true and noble and righteous and pure and so on. And keep out what is ugly. And keep out what is evil and sinful. Proverbs 4.23 speaks that way. And then eventually what is in your heart will become known in your deeds and in your words. Second last, in verse 8, we have, or verse 7, we have brotherly affection or brotherly love. It's like the city in the USA called Philadelphia. Philadelphia comes from two Greek words, philos meaning love and adelphos meaning brother, love for the brother or love for brothers. So brotherly love, that's what we find, the same Greek word in verse 7, Philadelphia, And there are many commands in Scripture that tell us to love the brothers. Jesus said we should love one another as he loved us. We should outdo one another in showing honor. There should be brotherly affection. Uh, It says in Romans 12, 10, we should love the brothers. We should love one another more and more, not neglect or forget brotherly love, Hebrews 13, 1. But there should be this brotherly love, and it speaks even of of almost a burning love. In 1 Peter 1 verse 22, a sincere brotherly love. And it shouldn't only be made known in our words. Don't only say you love other Christians. This love must be practical. So during the lockdown, practical ways we can love one another. Calling each other on the phone, sending a message, sending a Bible verse, reminding others that you're praying for them and really doing so, uh, hearing of the needs of someone, paying money into their account, Uh, whatever ways we can find to truly love one another, as Jesus says in Matthew 25. Now, in this time, you can't visit the sick, um, but there are ways we can love one another, spurring one another on to love and good works. Because that's a mark of a true believer, according to verse 7. That's a true Christian. It's one who has brotherly love. If you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness. You're a liar to say that you're a Christian. Um, Jesus tells us that that's like Cain was in the book of Genesis. He was of the evil one. He hated his brother. How can you say you love God whom you haven't seen, but your brother whom you can't see, you don't love, you hate? And then last on this list in verse 7 is love. Some translations uh, say speak of neighborly love, agape. Agape love. So we have the saying in English, charity begins at home. 
meaning you should first take care of your own people before you take care of others. And the same in this passage, verse 7 says, first brotherly love, then love in general, love for all men. So love for your neighbor, love for other people really flows from your love to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. So we first love God and from that flows this agape love that is God's love in us first and then we love him back and then out of that love for God flows this agape love for our neighbors. So how do you love your neighbor? You love your neighbor by praying for them, by blessing for them, by not cursing them, by not repaying evil for evil, by, by helping them, by forgiving them, by, like the Good Samaritan, helping his enemy, by not being jealous or envious, but being friendly and not boasting and being loving and kind and gentle and generous and so on. First uh, Corinthians 13, you can go and read those marks of biblical love. And then when, when neighbors start asking you, why are you doing this? Then you have an opportunity to tell them of the great love of Jesus Christ for sinners in his death on the cross. Number three, main heading number three, the reason for spiritual growth, verse 8 and 9. Well, the first reason is so that you can be fruitful. You can bear fruit. I have this, I have this useless peach tree in my yard. It doesn't bear fruit. Um, for many years it hasn't, or the fruit comes out and it just goes rotten on the tree. It turns black. It doesn't even grow large and become ripe. And we, we don't want to be that way. So we want to take verse 5 to 7 seriously to add all those things to our faith and to grow spiritually by God's empowerment and grace so that we can bear fruit. And when we bear fruit, the Father will be glorified. Verse 8, for if these qualities, meaning verse 5 to 7, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For otherwise, if, you, if you're not growing spiritually, you're not bearing fruit, well, and if you don't do those qualities and practice and increase, well, then verse 8, then you're really going to be ineffective. In your knowledge of the Lord Jesus, you're going to be unfruitful. Your knowledge will just be head knowledge like the devil's knowledge. The devil also has knowledge of Jesus. He knows Jesus is God who became man, who died on the cross for sinners, who rose from the dead. But that's just an, an ineffective and unfruitful knowledge. We want our knowledge to bear fruit. Fruit of obedience. What, what does it help people say, wow, you know, you really know the Bible. So what? So what if your life... If you've got this knowledge, but your life doesn't look different from the world's. And then also, another reason for spiritual growth is, so that in the end, it wouldn't come out that you're really an unbeliever. So, let's say you visit the zoo, the Johannesburg Zoo, and you go to the lion's den, or where the lions are, in the enclosement. And when you stand there, you see a sign on the wall and it says bears, grizzly bears. And you look at the lions and you look at the sign. Are they grizzly bears just because the sign says they're grizzly bears? Well, of course not. You know those animals in the enclosement aren't grizzly bears because grizzly bears have certain characteristics and these animals have different characteristics and it's very plain they're not grizzly bears, they're lions. 
And in the same way, you're not a Christian just because you say you're one. Just because you pray or you read the Bible or you come to church or you had some spiritual experience or you know the right lingo, you know how to, to speak Christianity fluently, or maybe your pastor says you're a Christian or your parents say you're a Christian. You're not a Christian just because someone says so. If your life is not characterized by the things we saw in verse 5 to 7, well, then you're a professing Christian. You say you're one, but you're not a true one. You're not a true Christian. You're spiritually blind. You cannot see God. You cannot see the, the truth of the gospel. You don't understand spiritual things. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. You are nearsighted. You're only looking to temporal things. That's what you're focusing on. You, you don't care a whit or a whip or how to say it in English. You don't care anything for, for eternal things. You just want the benefits. So you're nearsighted and you're blind. And then he goes on to say, you've forgotten, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. When you were baptized, baptism pictures that you are cleansed from sin, like Acts 22.16 tells us and Acts 2 verse 38. But now it says, you've forgotten, you've forgotten, oh, that's what this baptism meant, that Jesus cleanses us from sin. And then I have to ask you, why were you ever baptized? Why were you baptized? Was it to feel good about yourself? Was it as a ritual? Or maybe you hoped this would save you? Or maybe you wanted to impress people? Number four, finally, the goal of spiritual growth. Verse 10 and 11. So the goal is to give us assurance of salvation. So let's say there's a rugby match at, uh, in Cape Town. And at the rugby match, the Springboks are playing the All Blacks. And so many, 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 many thousands of fans wear Springbok rugby jerseys. Does that mean they're Springbok rugby players? Well, of course not. And yet we have to say every Springbok rugby player will wear a Springbok rugby jersey. And so now to draw the illustration to our text... Doing verse 5 to 7, doing those stuff, doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you become a Christian. And yet every true Christian will do the things in verse 5 to 7. If you do not, if your life is not characterized by verse 5 to 7, then you're going to doubt your salvation. You're going to doubt your salvation. But if you do those things and you do add to your faith virtue and so on and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, godliness and, and the rest, if you do that, then you'll have assurance of salvation. Because you can see, but my life shows. The characteristics shows I am a grizzly bear. The characteristics show that I am a Christian. And so we need to grow in the characteristics of verse 5 to 7. And then and then only will you know, ah, now I know God has called me to be His own. God has chosen me. He's elected me. Because my life shows that He has chosen and elected me. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent or sure to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So uh, another lesson from that, to draw from that is, uh, this teaches that the doctrine of election doesn't make you passive. 
The doctrine of election doesn't make you sit back and say, Oh, God has chosen me to be his child. I don't need to do anything. I can just sit back. Nothing can go wrong. No, the doctrine of election makes us active. Verse 5 to 7. It makes you do verse 5 to 7. And you do that because you want to know for sure. Oh, I see the characteristics of a Christian in my life, which means I am chosen by God. And then also it will help you not to fall, verse 10b. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So if you're sitting on a bicycle and you're not moving forward, you're going to fall. The bike's going to fall and you're going to fall. And the same spiritually. If you're not moving forward spiritually, if you're not moving forward as verse 5 to 7 explains, you're going to fall. Verse 10 tells us that. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So the opposite must be true also. So we have to move forward. We have to move forward, otherwise you are going to fall for false teaching, and you are going to fall into sin. Chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But, so the opposite meaning, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You want to grow so that you don't fall. And then also, the reason, or not the reason, the, the goal of spiritual growth is it leads to reward. It leads to reward. Now, you hear that and you say, that sounds like the prosperity gospel. We, we're serving Jesus because we want rewards, we want stuff. No, no. The prosperity gospel, their preachers say that you must have earthly riches and chase that. That's not what I mean. That's not what Peter means. That's not, that's not what the Bible means. Jesus said that we must chase after spiritual rewards, heavenly riches. So now it says in verse 11, God will richly provide you. They are the riches. In this way, they will be richly provided for you. An entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A rich provision of entering God's kingdom. The riches of the kingdom is yours. Christ is yours. He is the king. He is the treasure. So you will have that if you trust in Christ. If you have faith, verse 5, and then the rest of the list that follows from verse 5 to 7. Or in verse 5 to 7. Now that, that does not mean that you earn God's kingdom. Oh, you can earn the kingdom. No, what it means is there's a type of faith and a type of life that flows from faith that is needed if you want to enter God's kingdom and receive the reward. So just think about it. Verse 11 says... They will be provided, richly provided in entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God gives you his kingdom. Luke 12, 32, God has given us the kingdom. It's ours for the taking. Do you want it? Do you want it? Or are you like a dog? Are you like a pig? You return to your own vomit. You return to the vomit of the world. You return to the mud of the world. Because you know of nothing better. Chapter 2, 22. The dog return to its, returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud or the mire. You, you remind me of someone then who plays that game, money or the box. So you can choose, do you want the money? You don't know what's in the box and you don't know how much money. 
And then they offer you 5,000. And then they say money on the box. And you think, wow, what's in the box? And it, it can be a plastic toy or it can be something very expensive. And then uh, eventually you don't know and you say, no, the box, I think I want the box. And okay, we'll give you 20,000. Ooh, money or the box. When you think maybe there's something very expensive in the box. A diamond ring worth more than 20,000. And you say, I think I want the box. Are you sure? Let's make it 50,000. Oh, and now it's difficult. And you take the 50,000 and you can kick yourself because inside the box were the keys to a Rolls Royce Phantom, which is worth 6 million rand. And you, and you lost the Rolls Royce because you went for the 50,000. So what I'm really trying to say to you is, you're going to kick yourself if you choose temporary and earthly pleasures and earthly happiness and you prefer that to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray for grace and for help as we try and apply this, not in our own strength, but by the strength you provide. And we ask for your grace and help and the working of the Holy Spirit to guide our steps and guide our feet in the way of righteousness and obedience, that we may grow spiritually and become more and more like Jesus and be prepared to meet you one day face to face. Amen.